Good morning. And this brings us to Daniel 8 today. Daniel um, gets another vision. And last week's vision was a very familiar one to many Christians, at least the term son of man and the son of man coming on the clouds and the four beasts and so forth. Uh, many have heard that vision. This one is a little less familiar. Uh, but again, we have this vision given to Daniel that is prophetic regarding the coming kingdoms. I mean, a lot of attention given to this in Daniel about the future and the future line of kingdoms that are marching toward the final end, which, as we've noted, is the coming of Christ, right? When, when, when Daniel says, when the angel says to Daniel, this is, hey, Daniel, don't worry, this doesn't really even have a lot to do with you. This is about the end. He doesn't mean the end times out in whatever year, 20 something, 30 something. I don't know when the end will be. Uh, he, he's referring to Christ. Um, and you'll even know, and we'll come back to this again at the end of Daniel, that at the end of this vision, he tells him, seal up this vision. Daniel, this isn't for you. Seal, seal it up um, until the time. And then it's interesting, is it not, that in Revelation 5, when Jesus is revealed, the crucified and risen Lord uh, uh, the lamb slain yet standing, he takes the scroll out of the right hand of the one on the throne and unseals it. Right? This is the end. Right? This is the time now of fulfillment in the end. So we see that we'll come back to that at the very end of Daniel. But we'll, we'll hold Revelation 5 in our... So the end is not the end end like we tend to think, the end times. Uh, in that sense, we are living in the end times. The end times are begun. They begun with the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we let's just let's get our bearings back on the vision, what Daniel sees, get a quick interpretation of it, and then draw some points from it. Um, kind of random points. So they're linked to the the uh, uh, the text, but some random observations and points from our text today. So what does Daniel see? The first thing he sees is a ram out here by the river. And uh, the ram has two horns, uh, and I entitled this sermon A Vision of Horns because that's sort of the theme that runs through the whole thing, is we've got all these horns, and horns are breaking off, and horns are getting snapped, and new horns are growing, and, and so forth. And even when we see Jesus in Revelation 5, uh, in, in that glorious, uh, um, though mysterious vision in Revelation 5, uh, of course, he is the lamb slain yet standing with seven horns. So we're back with the horns. So these horns are important. And the horn is an image of authority and power. Okay, so Daniel sees a, a ram. And the ram has two horns. Uh, one is smaller than the other. And the second one, uh, the, 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 the bigger horn, uh, came later. So one horn grew and the second horn grew, and, but they were both on the same ram, and uh, but the second horn was larger. And we've, we've already reflected on this uh, in the image of the different beasts, uh, that this is the end. We get the interpretation, so we're not guessing or speculating here. Uh, this is the media Persian Empire, right? That is about to come in and con remember, Daniel gets this vision during the reign of Belshazzar. So Nebuchadnezzar has died. This is either Nebuchadnezzar's grandson or son. We debated. We're not sure what that, where he is in the line, but he's a relative and now he's reigning. And we know that the ones who will conquer Babylon is the media Persian, the, the Persians and the Medes. 
and the Medes are first, and they're a little bit weaker. It's the Persians that are really going to dominate of the two. It's going to be the Media Persian Empire, but really it's the Persian Empire. Uh, the Persians are the stronger ones. And so we get this image of a ram with the two horns, and boy, they just start crushing and trampling. And, and they're, they're conquering to the north and to the east and to the south, and they're just having their way, and really no one can stop them. Now remember, Daniel gets this vision in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, and by time Belshazzar then get, remember, he gets his vision, the writing on the wall, and literally the writings on the wall, you're done, you're cooked. And uh, he calls Daniel in to interpret it and says, uh, Daniel, if you can interpret this, uh, you know, I'll make you third in the kingdom and I'll give you a necklace and a this and that. And Daniel's like, thanks. You know, because he knows, he knows what's about to go down because of this vision, at least in part, right? In this vision, which he gets earlier in the reign of Belshazzar, because that, that vision of the writing on the wall literally comes the night that the Medes and Persians come running through the gates. He had already been told, there's a ram with two horns that's going to come in and trample, and no one's going to be able to stop him. Uh, and so Belshazzar is going to be done, and Daniel knew that. So he interpreted the writing on the wall for Belshazzar, but uh, it didn't, didn't really do a dance when he got the, uh, the honorary titles and so forth because he knew, you know, again, they were, they were like, you know, um, uh, they, they were like money from, a, from a, a country that was about to go down. What It's worth nothing. You know, it's Weimar Republic, you know, Deutschmarks. Um, so he knew that because of this. So he sees this ram and the ram is going to conquer and wow, that's going to be something. Then he looks over and well, there's a goat. <sighs> yeah. and, the, and the goat is, is charging at the ram. And this goat has a notable, like a unicorn. Uh, he's got a notable, right? this is not just like, oh, it's a little bump. This is, he notices this is very, it's conspicuous, this horn coming out of the, the center of its head. And he is running toward the ram with, with ferocity. Uh, he's got a real chip on his shoulder toward the ram. He wants to take the ram down. And what's interesting about this goat is his feet are not touching the ground. It's like he's flying, this goat. Almost like a leopard with wings, if you remember our our, uh, our vision last week, right? That the reign of the Greeks, and especially that of Alexander, uh, was noted in the last vision as a leopard, lightning fast, and even faster because he had eagle's wings flying, you know? And so in this vision, which again, we're dealing with the Greeks, and we're not speculating, uh, Gabriel tells us this, that this is the Greeks, and the horn... The power uh, here is its first king. And we know who that is. That is Alexander the Great, right? Alexander the Great succeeded his father, Philip of Macedonia. At that time, you had the, the, the you know, Macedonia is just to the north of Greece. And uh, the Greeks, you know, they were, have, they were just coming off their wars. They were fighting amongst themselves. They had just battled the Persians, and so Persia had put a hurting on, on the Greeks. If you remember, uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, or if you, you know, you don't want to admit it, but you saw the movie 300, you know, that was about that. And, and, the, you know, the Persians came and they were enemies of the Greeks. And the Greeks were always nervous that the Persians were going to be coming back. And, and, and that fear of the Persians coming back started some fighting among the Greeks. Who is going to lead the Greeks? Will it be the Athenians or the Spartans? And, 
no, it's us. No, it should be us. Well, no, but you did that. But no, you did that. And all of a sudden, you know, we have the Peloponnesian Wars. And the Peloponnesian Wars are the wars between the Greek city-states. And so they're fighting now with one another, worried the whole time that the Persians are going to come back, but the Persians don't come back. Meanwhile, while they're fighting with one another among the Greek city-states, up north, Philip of Macedonia is killed, I think, at his daughter's wedding, of all things. And... There's no one to succeed him but his son, Alexander. But Alexander's a young man. He's 20 years old. But he is made king. And he wastes no time like a leopard with wings, like a leopard with eagle's wings, like a goat flying, you know, rocket propelled over the ground. Um, he then marches right down on Greece and conquers Greece, makes Greece his own, not out of animosity toward Greece, but in love for Greece. He loves Greece, and he loved Greek culture. His father, Philip of Macedonia, had actually brought Aristotle, I mean, the Aristotle, in to be Alexander's tutor. Alexander the Great had Aristotle as his, as his homeschool teacher. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, just think about it. It's just amazing to think about that. It was his personal teacher as Aristotle. So, so he loved, you know, um, Alexander loved Greek culture and basically he wants to make it all his. So he marches right down, boom, conquers it. Then just come on guys, let's keep going. Everything he conquered, he never stayed, but now his desire is to spread Greek culture around. And he's got a little beef with the Persians because the Persians had really stuck it to the Greeks. And so sure, he's going and he's going to conquer up here in Asia Minor and he's going to go down and he's going to conquer Egypt. Oh, but he's got his eye on Persia. He wants Persia, right? And so the goat is looking at the ram and he's just charging at the ram. And he does. And he destroys Persia with rage and you know tramples it in the image. Well, as the story goes, you might know from your history, uh, Alexander doesn't stop with Persia. He's just, he's a man who, again, he's a, he's a leopard with wings. He just, he's meant to fly. That's all. He's not a stationary being. And so he keeps going. He says, why stop at Persia? Let's keep going. So they keep heading east and they head all the way out to India. And finally, his men say to him, ah, look, Alexander, we love you. Uh, man, we love, fight. we love fighting with you. Um, but wow, we love to go home. <laughs> and he says, you want to, you want to go home? We've come this far and you, and he's just like, you know what? Fine, go. I don't even need you. I don't even know why I brought you anyway. Go home, you bunch of babies. And the men just can't handle Alexander talking to him, talking to them this way. And they begin weeping. And they say, no, 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 we will go with you. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. So he says, all right, let's go. And so they march into India and they conquer a little further. They get all the way to the Indus River. And then some of his guys say to him, hey, look, that was, that was good. It was good to go a little further, but we really should get back. And even Alexander says, all right, where are we going to go now? Keep going to China. And so they turn around and he dies on the way back, probably of some kind of, you know, typhoid fever or something. Uh, and he doesn't even, he doesn't even make it back. He doesn't even get to reign over all the, he didn't, he just wanted to conquer. And so he dies on the way back. Well, when he dies on the way back, there's no one to succeed him. He doesn't have a son. And so he divides his kingdom to four generals. And hence, again, in the vision. Now, remember, by the way, this vision to Daniel is 200 plus years 
before all this stuff goes down, okay? Well, man, we'll come back to that in a, in a minute. But, but and I mean, because the level of detail here is pretty amazing. So, okay, so the goat is going, the, the horn is going to get knocked off. He, he dies. And out of that stump of a horn grows four horns. And these will be the four generals. And they divvy up the kingdom. Now, of those four, this little one of the Solution Dynasty, right? So one gets Egypt, one gets the Middle East, one gets Asia Minor, one gets basically Greek and Macedonia. Out of the Solution uh, uh, Empire rises up in due time this little nasty horn who we know is Antiochus IV, who then makes it his mission to take down the Jews. He is hell-bent to destroy Israel. And you get this image here. This is what I think unsettles Daniel so bad. I mean, you can see it actually flips over in, in chapter 8, like flips over into poetry in verse 23. And the time is going to come when this guy, not named here, but this little horn, this little uh, pompous horn is going to rise up and he's going to make war. He's going to he's going to trample here and there and he's going to make war against the Holy Land. And he's even going to take down some of the stars. In fact, he's going to he's even going to make war against the prince of princes. Now, Daniel doesn't name him, but it's Christ. Right, the son of man who Daniel saw in his vision, who's lifted up in heaven. He's going to make war against him. He's going to try to rival him. He's going to undo the sacrifices. I mean, again, the detail here is pretty amazing. He's going to end the sacrifices. He's going to throw down the truth. And this is what happens. Antiochus IV, when he gets in power, he sends, he sends, and you can read about this in uh, in First Maccabees. In the Apocrypha, this is, this is, it's not that the, we don't, we don't believe the Apocrypha is inspired word of God, but it doesn't mean it's not good literature or that's not true history. Maccabees the first tells you the story of these, of these events. And Antiochus the fourth, when he comes to power, he sends an emissary to the Israelites of goodwill with all kinds of riches and so forth and calling for them to compromise some things and form a good relationship with him. Many of the leaders of the land do accept this and accept it on his terms. And once they kind of throw open the gates to Antiochus, in comes the army and they just butcher the Israelites. Like 40,000 people in three days kind of butchery. I mean, just we we hear we even see what's going on in Israel right now. We're horrified and we should be horrified. Absolutely. But I mean, think about this. And you think about this, this is why this is, you know, Hanukkah, Hanukkah comes out of this. The reason they're still celebrating Hanukkah, because it was ultimately the final preservation of God from this and the raising up of, of uh, Judas Maccabeus to, to push back and revolt after three years of siege and, and, uh, and warfare against him. This is, this is how violent and nasty it was. And not only that, Antiochus, when he comes in and does this, then like just aims right at the temple. And he marches to the temple and he strips it down. Everything of value, stolen, taken. And then it is utterly desecrated. 
Number one, you can no longer have any sacrifices here to the Jews. If you do, you do it at the penalty of death. You must not, any of your covenantal things, no circumcision may be done in the land. That's out. The Torah is taken, literally thrown to the ground, trampled on. The truth is thrown down. Then to just desecrate it all the more, he takes pigs and has pigs uh, sacrificed on the altar of the temple to just stick it to them as something unclean. Then, supposedly, he sets up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He sets up a statue of... Remember, the temple, by the way, had been rebuilt, though much after it should have been, but it was in the process of being rebuilt once Cyrus, who comes right after Belshazzar, right, sends them back with money and everything to rebuild the temple. And when the temple finally gets rebuilt, the Lord was disappointed with Israel and said he would not inhabit it. Right, it's Ichabod. It's still, it's still the glorious departed. So he, it's, so you have you have him just marching into the holy of holies, planting a big statue of Zeus, just utter desecration, and then naming himself Theos Antiochus Epiphanes. Right, Antiochus, God manifested. I mean, this is a this little horn is is something else, and. But the horror that he brings to Israel for three years is really quite vicious and savage. It's bad. And Daniel sees this and he's horrified and he can't sleep. All right. Well, that's the vision. (laughs) What are we to make of it? Well, I just have a couple points. Number one, let's talk about the Bible. Let's just step outside the text for a second and say, this is one of those amazing confirmations, in my opinion, of the the veracity and validity of the Bible. Right? Daniel's prophecy is 200 plus years prior to the events. And it's not just like, oh, you know, Persia is not going to last and uh, there's going to be another kingdom that comes after them and that kingdom won't last either. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. Amazing detail given to this. And I, I just, I just lay that out before you as a, an encouragement about the, the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible as an authority from God that is inspired by God. It's really incredible detail. In fact, uh, that is given, uh, down to the number of rulers, down to the kinds of things that will happen by Antiochus when he comes in and, and desecrates the temple and so forth. I mean, amazing, amazing detail. Uh, so one, I think, I think we should just appreciate that. Number two, my second point is God will not be mocked. It's interesting in this horrifying vision that it is said that this little horn, this Antiochus, who's going to come and do all these horrible things, rising up from one of the dynasties of Alexander's generals, uh, will do this um, because of the sins of Israel. You know, it, it's really because of their transgressions. When in the latter time, their kingdom, when their transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. The, the iniquity that brings this is the iniquity of Israel. 
This is why in Isaiah 40, when it says, speak comfort, speak comfort, you know, your iniquity is pardoned. You've received double for all your sin. I mean, Israel is at that time, remember, this is a prophecy before all that even happens. This, this is a prophecy before Daniel happens. And the idea is the time is going to come when there's going to be comfort. But the comfort is going to come on the other side of dealing with Israel's sins. It's Israel's sins that brought them to this place. It's Israel's sins that brought them out into exile. It's Israel's sins that has postponed the restoration. It's Israel's sins. Many within Israel compromise. They give in to Antiochus. Okay, 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 you know what? Let's, let's do it to make peace with him. And the Lord was not having it. And he gave them over to the hands of Antiochus for a time. And it's a very sobering, reminder to us that the Lord is, will not be mocked. Our God is righteous and just. I think of that passage in 2 Timothy 2 when he says, if we deny him, he will not, uh, he, um, he, if we deny him, he will deny us for he cannot deny himself. It's like, you know, the Lord will hold to his honor and his integrity and his justice and his righteousness. And we ought never forget that he is a consuming fire and a holy God. And all that he allows Antiochus to do is, but just as I was saying in my prayer, that the beautiful leaves out there and the beautiful day that we're going to enjoy today, what a gorgeous drive to church it was for me, I'm sure for you as well. I mean, just coming over the reservoir out here. I mean, that little drive that I got over 35, just coming over the, go out and come back. Over the reservoir, it's worth it. It's worth it. The, the, the beauty of the still reservoir, like a sea of glass with the mountain, the hills, and just this vibrant color, and then reflecting in the, I mean, it was spectacular. And yet, that is a pale, a pale shadow of the glory of the Lord that we will enjoy. Well, the horrors of Antiochus, 40,000 in a day, this terrible thing, that desecration, this horrible thing. Is it, we go, oh, I can't, I can't believe, I can't believe God would allow that to happen. You, you haven't seen anything yet. You can't fathom the depths of the wrath of God. He will not be mocked. Therefore, let us repent. Let us hear this and recognize what our sins deserve. You heard the, the psalm, for those who didn't sing with us today on the internet, go read Psalm 109. We sang it. That's rough stuff. We don't like singing that about anyone because you deserve worse. And this text reminds, there's a reason why Daniel can't sleep. Who could sleep hearing that? And indeed, it is what our sins deserve. So first, the veracity of the Bible. Number two, uh, the character of God that we see here. Number three, I think it's very important now to turn the background music of our sermon here a little more positive, is to remember that the reign of kings is in the hands of God. That, again, this is being prophesied 200 years before it happens. Who's in control? Alexander the Great or God? Antiochus the Fourth or God? When Antiochus IV does all this stuff, 
in, in some sense, he's only doing what the, the author wrote him into the story to do. Antiochus doesn't think it's that way. He's so pompous, this little horn. But indeed, it's already been told. Worth remembering, even in our day, when we see calamity and trouble around us, to remind ourselves that our God is the God who prophesies, our God is the God who plans, our God is the God who works all things according to the purpose of his will. Interesting, in verse 24, it says, in speaking about Antiochus and this, this disaster that he is going to be able to do, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy t- people. Yeah, he's going to do all these things. And he will be very mighty, but not by his own might. The might of Antiochus IV is solely dependent upon the authority of God. His horn is a horn that is given to him for a time. And the one who gives the horn can rip the horn off. He is mighty, but it's a might given to him. And we thought, go back again, read Revelation 13, when the beast, who is the culmination of all these beasts, even Antiochus, comes up out of the sea with his seven heads and ten horns. And it says, it was authority was given to him to make war against the saints, right? Authority was given to him. It's very important for us to remember that in all of our afflictions, those who even do their worst to us have their authority by God. Now, we may not understand why. We may cry out to the Lord, all understandable, but it's worth remembering that the God who loves you, the God who sent his only son to die for your sins, the God who has promised you eternal life is the God who's got his hand firmly on the wheel. Nothing else is driving this train. He is solely in charge. Fourth point, the temple. We might ask, but Lord, why of all things? Like, okay, maybe let them come in and, and okay, they, they, they bring judgment. To, but why would you let them desecrate your house? <laughs> like why, why let it, why allow for a moment the, the, this arrogance in which they march into the temple and desecrate it? That's a good question. It, it certainly represents the judgment of God that God has allowed his people to be turned over. I mean, the fact that even there, the presence of the glory of the Lord is desecrated. But again, even here, we see a picture of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, they, they, were, they were just in awe. They come out one day and there's the, the, the temple just radiant, you know, like a beautiful fall day. And they say to Jesus, wow, isn't this amazing? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, destroy it. In three days, I'll rebuild it. And then John tells us, oh, he was speaking of his own body. The temple he was speaking of was his own body. Yes, because his body is, the temple represents Emmanuel. The temple represents God in the midst of his people. And Jesus is Emmanuel. He is the presence of God in the midst of his people. And if you thought that the desecration of a building by Antiochus IV and, 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 and sacrificing the blood of pigs on the altar and putting a statue of Zeus on the thing was so bad. Again, you haven't seen anything yet. Wait until that day in that little pompous Caiaphas and that pompous horn uh, Pontius Pilate. Send Emmanuel himself, the very living temple, to Golgotha and there desecrate it. 
and God allowing his temple to be desecrated, yes, as an act of judgment upon his people, but as an act of judgment that he willingly takes for them so that in return he can say to the ones who deserve to be desecrated, comfort. Yes, comfort my people. Tell them their pardon is given. Their iniquity is removed. Double has been paid for all their sins. The God of the temple himself comes and is desecrated by Antiochus by Pontius Pilate, by the beast, by Caiaphas, so that he can extend mercy and grace. He bears Psalm 109, right? He bears all the imprecatory Psalms. He bears on behalf of his people. And then finally, the pattern. And this is now, let, let me just take all this and bring it forward to us because the temple is desecrated in by Antiochus as a prelude to the ultimate desecration that's about to happen at Golgotha for us. But then out the other side of that, Jesus is resurrected and he says to his disciples, you know, you now are the temple, right? You're going to receive my spirit. Paul says, your body, you, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, we are each living stones being built into a holy house. Okay, so you are the temple of God. It's interesting in Revelation chapter uh, 11 that we get these images of coming trouble for the church. That's what the whole book is about, right? They, we got to deal with a beast. The beast is going to come up in chapter 13. But in chapter 11, in one of these cycles of vision regarding the time in which we live, because that's what I'm telling you I think Revelation is about, is a description of the time between the first and second comings of Christ. And you get all these little images and visions of what that looks like, and most of them are pretty scary, because we live in a time of in which the body of Christ, the church, is called to suffer. Okay? Now is the time of the cross. Then will be the time of the crown. And we get this image in chapter 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. This is John speaking. And an angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there. And this image of measuring is an image of marking it off. That which is measured is protected by God. And so he measures the inner sanctuary. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple. This is the outer court of the temple, okay? Leave out the outer court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And that is to say the temple is going to be trampled. The, the temple is going to be desecrated. And guess what? You are the temple. Now, they can't get to the inner sanctuary. They, they, can, they cannot touch the inner sanctuary of the church. They cannot defeat the church. You cannot destroy the church that marched triumphantly through history. But they can destroy you. They can trample you. They can kill you. They can't touch your soul. Right? Again, Joseph Zahn, sir, your best, your best weapon is killing me, but my best weapon is dying. Yeah. If you kill me, you send me to glory. Sir, you can't threaten me with glory. Yes, that's right. They can't touch that. There's, they have no weapon to get there, but they can trample the outer courts. 
and they sure as heck will. It has been given over to the Gentiles to trample it. The beast has been given authority to make war against the saints and to overcome them. Not in the inner sanctuary, but in the outer. Therefore, my final point to you is we must see the pattern, even here of Daniel 8, that goes through Christ and out the other side. Now, when the temple is trampled, it's not an act of judgment by God against his people. That has been dealt with on the cross. Now, the trampling of the temple is redemptive. It is for the sake of the world. Right, We must bear in our flesh the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. Right, We are the, we as the body of Christ bear the marks of the suffering of Christ for the sake of the world. That's our calling. We're one flesh with him. We're his bride. We're his body. And as he was trampled, so we will be trampled. And yet our inner sanctuary cannot be touched any of this trampling will be undone, will be renewed. There'll be a new Jerusalem, right, that comes down, a holy city, a perfect holy of holies. If you remember that, it was a cubicle city. It's, it will all be restored, but now is the time of trampling. Now is the time of affliction. Not the affliction of Daniel, because it's not in judgment, but a time of suffering because we are co-workers with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's important for us to embrace that and not do like I do of trying to just navigate my way through life with the most minimal amount of suffering, but to recognize this is what you and I have been called to do, to join in with the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the validity of the Bible, the fact that our God will not be mocked, to remember that all kings reign only, only and ever by the authority of our God, that the trampling of the temple, as awful as it was, was a pointer forward to that day of the ultimate desecration of the temple, which would be for the salvation of Israel and for the world. And then finally, the pattern that there is for us, brothers and sisters, now is the time for our trampling. Now is the time for our suffering. Let us suffer with Christ, Peter says. Paul says, be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and suffer hardship with me, Timothy. Now is the time in which we're to embrace that for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our lamb, the lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, yet standing, for he has seven horns, perfect power, perfect authority, the authority that is able to cast away the two-horned ram, the the single-horned goat, the four-horned goat, even the pompous little horn of Antiochus, the ten horns of the beast that rise up out of the sea, for he is the lamb with seven horns, perfect in his power and authority, for he has been crucified and has conquered even death itself and stands with the authority over life and death. And so we give you thanks that he is our king. Make us faithful then, we pray, even in the day of our trampling, even in the days of our affliction, May we honor you by faithfulness, knowing that victory is ours in and through him. We pray this in his name. Amen.